Good morning, everyone. As Joy said, my name is Ray, in case I haven't met you yet. Um, it's good to come before you this morning to preach God's word. Good news. Everybody loves good news. And everybody loves sharing good news. Who got a Christmas gift that they were so excited about they couldn't wait to tell someone? Anyone? Weddings? Engagements? Yeah, excellent. More people sharing good news. Um, births, birth announcements. We love hearing about people's new babies. School acceptances, new job offers, big accomplishments. What about some new exercise or weight loss regimens that were really successful for you that you want to tell other people about? Um, I started... Uh, an online biking uh, platform called Zwift about three years ago, and I've really enjoyed it. And every chance when I find, when I hear someone who likes to bike, I immediately tell them about Zwift because it was so great for me. It was uh, really transformed indoor training, especially in the winter, and it's transformed me so much I hardly ever bike outside anymore. I just bike in my basement. And so whenever I hear other people who like to bike, I tell them about Zwift because maybe it'll transform them too. So we all love to share the good news, especially when we've been really changed by it, and we think other people might also be similarly changed by that. The more we are changed, the more compelled we are to tell other people because they might be changed too. But what about the good news of the gospel? Has, Has your life been changed by the gospel? Are you therefore then compelled to tell other people about the gospel? Well, how's that going for you? Do you ever find yourself thinking, well, what, what do I say? Or, or I don't know what to say. I'm, uh, or find yourself scared to share about your faith? You think what people will think about you? Um, you ever think, well, if only I could be like so-and-so, then I could share my faith. Or about that missionary. What about Jesus' disciples? If I could be like them, I mean, they started the whole faith. If I could be like them, it would be easy. But the disciples were not amazing evangelists. At least they weren't always amazing evangelists. So today, we're going to consider how the disciples were transformed into effective evangelists. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 11. As Joey said, this is right after the four Gospels in the New Testament, right after the book of John and before the book of Romans. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself to them, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. But while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Acts 1.11 repeats the final scene recorded in Luke 24, Jesus' conversation with his disciples before he was taken up to heaven in the ascension. So in Acts 1-11, through 11, in the first three verses, we see that Acts was also written by Luke, and this is his second book, the first book being the Gospel of Luke, and this book, Acts, is also written to Theophilus and continues his first book. And in fact, he summarizes his first book, the book of Luke, in the first three verses. And we also learn in verse 3 that this was now 40 days after Jesus was resurrected. In verses 4 and 5, Luke, uh, Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, And then in verse 6, we see that the disciples were still thinking that Jesus was going to lead a political kingdom. That they still didn't understand that Jesus' kingdom was spiritual, not political. In verse 7, Jesus answers their question without really answering their question. And then immediately tells them in verse 8 that they will receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses. And Acts 1.8 is a thesis statement for the rest of Acts, how the disciples were Jesus Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the, and, and throughout that region to establish the Christian church. But how does Acts 1.8 follow from the verses before that? Acts 1.8 says he's going, they will be his witnesses. But what are they going to witness? They were thinking that Jesus was going to lead a political kingdom. So are they going to go tell people this political, about this political kingdom? And people will ask them, when is it going to come? Well, they say, well, uh, I'm not sure. So there seems to be a disconnect between Acts 1.7 and Acts 1.8. And we're going to talk about that disconnect in a little bit. But we know from the rest of the book of Acts that Acts 1.8 actually refers to the Christian church and that Jesus was going to build his church on the foundation of the disciples. Now, if you're going to start a new religion, a worldwide religion, are the disciples going to be your executive team? Are they the winning people? Well, let's take a look at that. We know that disciples were, some were fishermen, some were tax collectors. They were lowly. They were not, certainly, the cream of the crop of that society. They had been with Jesus for about three years, seeing his disciples, uh, seeing his miracles, and hearing his teachings. 
And despite all that time with him, and in, because of all that time with him, they had become to believe that he was going to be the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. However, they had a fundamental error in that knowledge, in that, in that uh, Savior. They thought that this was going to be a political Savior, Jesus was going to be, not a spiritual Savior. Despite Jesus telling them on three separate occasions, twice in Luke chapter 9 and once in Luke chapter 18, that he was going to suffer and die. But they had it, the disciples had it fixed in their minds that Jesus was going to be a political savior, so they couldn't hear what Jesus was trying to tell them. In Luke 22, the evening before Jesus' crucifixion, when Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and they were very excited with anticipation because they thought this was it. This was when Jesus was going to come into his own, into his power, was going to take over, was going to throw off the Roman oppression. And so right after the meal, what do they do? They start arguing about who was the greatest. Why were they doing this? They were jockeying for position in the new administration. They wanted to be the greatest because they wanted to be the big positions once Jesus came into power. Jesus was thinking about himself and his impending suffering, and all the disciples were doing were thinking about themselves and how great they were. They were self-centered people. Right after that, Jesus tells Peter he's going to fall away, and Peter responds, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Why? Because he didn't think that Jesus was going to prison and to death. It's easy to say when you don't think that's going to happen. But just a few hours later, when Jesus was imprisoned and looked like he was heading to death, what did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times out of fear of the religious leaders. He was a coward. But what about the other disciples? I don't want to pick on Peter. In fact, Peter was probably the bravest of the disciples because he actually went and tried to figure out what was going to happen to Jesus. Whereas the other disciples just completely ran away. So the disciples we see were self-centered cowards. And in Acts 1.6, we see that they still thought Jesus was going to be the political savior, right? When Jesus died, all their hopes were dashed. When Jesus came back to life, their hopes were resurrected too. Whoa, maybe he is going to be the political savior. Jesus, when is this going to happen? When are you going to come into your own? In Acts 1-6, that's what they asked. Just three chapters later in Acts 4, Peter and John were imprisoned by the religious authorities for their teaching about Jesus. And when put on trial the next morning, instead of denying Jesus, this time they spoke boldly, defending Jesus, stating that salvation is only found in Jesus. In Acts 4.13, it says, Now when they, the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized 
that they had been with Jesus. In fact, it was not just that they had been with Jesus, but they were changed by Jesus. They were transformed by Jesus. They were no longer cowardly or self-centered. They recognized that Jesus was their spiritual savior and they stood up to the religious authorities because of this. Now, this event occurred right after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is Greek for 50th. So this was 50 days after Jesus came back to life. And so, remember the ascension occurred on day 40. And now this is about 50 days later. And so in 10 days, something happened to change the disciples from being self-centered cowards to these bold evangelists who stood up to the religious leaders um, and, and, and were no longer afraid to stand up and proclaim Jesus. What happened to the disciples in these 10 days? What transformed them from being self-centered cowards to effective evangelists? To understand this, let's look a little more closely at Acts 1, 6 through 8. So we saw that in 6, Acts verse 6, that they still, the disciples still thought Jesus was going to come into his political kingdom. And then in verse 8, I said there was a disconnect because Jesus was not talking about his political kingdom, but about his spiritual kingdom. So what happened between Acts 1, 6 and 7 and Acts 1, 8? I think we get a glimpse of this and a deeper understanding of what happened there by turning back to Luke chapter 24, which also records Jesus' final conversation with the disciples before he ascended into heaven. And so if we look at Luke 24, verses 44 to 47, I think this gives us deep insight into what happened. So Luke 24, 44 to 47. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So in verse 44, Jesus reminds them of the Old Testament prophecies in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms for a Savior. But they already knew this. They believed that. They just misunderstood that that was a political Savior rather than a spiritual Savior. Then in verse 45, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Nathan emphasized this point when he preached on this three weeks ago. But what did Jesus actually open their minds to understand? And I would suggest three things. Number one, in verse 46, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he told them that, in fact, his death and resurrection were part of the Old Testament prophecies for a, a savior. That this was not a political salvation. This was a spiritual salvation and that they were sinful in need of a savior. Now, the idea of sin was not new to them. They knew that they were sinful. In fact, Peter, the first day he met Jesus in Luke 5, 8 said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. 
they knew that they constantly broke the laws. If you look up Jewish commandments on the internet, you will find that there, in fact, the Jewish tradition has 613 commandments, not just the Ten Commandments, 613. So they were constantly breaking these commandments, constantly sacrificing animals for their sins. They knew they were sinful. But what's different, what Jesus opened their minds to, was that they need a spiritual savior that they couldn't save themselves. That no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't do it. This wasn't just about trying harder. This was, you can't do it. You need a spiritual savior to save you. The second point is that in verse 47, he ties his death and resurrection to the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His death and resurrection was a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And this was a transformative statement, a transformative viewpoint, because in their religious mindset, if you fail, then you just try harder and try harder and try harder. It's about living morally. It's about doing the right thing. But Jesus was telling them, that you can't, you are unable to do the right thing. That this is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That he was a sacrificial lamb for them once and for all. That he was a spiritual savior. And the third point was that this good news in verse 47 should then be proclaimed to all the nations. Tell everyone. This is not just a spiritual savior for you. This is, I am the spiritual savior for everyone, the whole world. This is what Jesus opened their minds to understand. That they were sinners in need of a spiritual savior. That they couldn't save themselves. That they needed Jesus to save them through repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And to tell the whole world about this good news. This was a monumental shift in worldview for them from the old covenant of the Old Testament to the new covenant of the New Testament. From repeated constant sacrifices to a once-for-all sacrifice. From a works-based salvation to a grace-based salvation. Grace, Tim Keller says that grace is receiving something you don't deserve from someone who didn't need to give it to you. In fact, it's even worse than that. It's not just something you didn't deserve, because in fact, what you deserve is the opposite. What we deserve for our sins is death. And Jesus, who didn't need to pay that price for us, freely paid that price for us. How many of us today truly understand our need for a Savior? This is an also a transformative shift in thinking for us. Most of us, we think we're pretty good people. We do good things. We don't, I, don't, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't hoard toilet paper. I do good things. I volunteer. I donate. I am kind to others. I try to live a moral life. We all do this. We all try to live a moral life because we, couldn't, we wouldn't be able to live with ourselves if we didn't. But what's the problem with that? 
everyone's standard of morality is a bit different. We see this so emphasized so clearly today in COVID times when everyone says to everyone else, be safe. But what is everyone's standard of safety? Everyone thinks that they are being safe. It's everyone else who are the risky ones, the crazy ones who are contributing to the rise in rates of COVID numbers. It's not me. I'm being safe. I'm only doing this and this. And we think that what we are doing is safe enough. But that everyone else is doing the crazy things and being reckless, right? Everyone's morals are slightly different. But that the problem is, at its core, sin is not about our morality. It's not about how good or how bad we are. Sin, at its core, is about what's in our hearts. And specifically, who is at the center of our hearts? Are we living for ourselves or for the God who created us, who loves us, who sent his son to die for us? When we live for ourselves, we make ourselves our own gods. If someone else's morals contradict ours, they're the ones who are wrong. We're the ones who are right. And so we just, if we just live by our own moral code, we'll be okay. But if we're truly honest with ourselves, we can't even live by our own moral codes. No matter how many good deeds we do, we are unable to not do bad deeds. Just this week, I find myself, I find that I live for myself constantly. I'm supposed to live sacrificially for my family, for my wife, for my kids. But I find that, in fact, I live sacrificially for myself. I love my wife if she loves me. If she's kind to me, I'm kind to her back. If she's mean to me, I am mean to her back. Is that sacrificial living? My kids, when they start fighting and arguing, I go and yell at them to stop fighting. I don't really care that they're fighting and beating each other up. I just don't want them to bother me. Go fight quietly. Don't bother me. That's not sacrificial living. That's selfish living. That's living for myself. That's what I do constantly. But Jesus calls us to make God the center of our hearts rather than ourselves. To love God first and foremost, and secondly, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then he defines our neighbors as our enemies. We are to love our enemies as much as we love ourselves. Who can do that? Who can live up to such a standard? No one. And that's the point. The purpose of God's standard is to show us the sin in our hearts. In case you thought you could live up to your own moral standards, which you can't, here's a perfect standard, which you definitely can't live up to. And God's impossible standards doesn't, doesn't make us more sinful. It just reveals to us the depths of the sin in our hearts. 
We are the ones who deserve to be on that cross, dying for our own sins. This is what Jesus opened the minds of the disciples to, that they are the ones who deserve to be on that cross, not him. And before, they thought they could earn their salvation by being good enough. And now Jesus shows them that they can't, that they need a Savior, that he died in their place once for all. And this is what transformed the disciples, the recognition of Jesus' great love for them on that cross. They witnessed that horrible, horrible event. And now they recognize that they should have been there in his place and that Jesus took their place and died willingly out of his deep love for them. He sacrificed himself. This is what transformed the disciples. This is the gospel. All of this happened. This is what Jesus explained to them between Acts 1-7 and Acts 1-8. Once you recognize and are convicted by the gospel and God's deep, overwhelming love for you, then it makes sense to go and share and tell this good news, be transformed and to tell this good news to the whole world. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, Acts 1.8. And this was the thesis of the whole book of Acts. This is what the rest of the book of Acts tells about what happened and what Joey will be preaching to us about the next week. The Holy Spirit, when we believe in Christ and his forgiveness of our sins, the Holy Spirit will come upon us and help us and give us power to live for Jesus and to be Christ's witnesses. Now, Luke 24, 48 says, you are witnesses of these things, present tense, right? Because they actually did witness Christ's death on the cross and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You are witnesses. But Acts 1, 8 says, You will be my witnesses. This is future tense. Right? It was both. They were witnesses and they will be witnesses. Right? Jesus was telling them, this will happen. You will be my witnesses. In fact, this statement was stated a different way also elsewhere in the Great Commission. If we look at the end of Mark, Mark chapter 16, which is the Great Commission stated there, The Great Commission was followed immediately by Jesus' ascension. So, in fact, the Great Commission was the same conversation that Jesus is having here. So, all of these passages are actually saying the same thing. You are witnesses, Luke 24, 48, Acts 1-8. You will be my witnesses. This is going to happen. So then, Matthew 28, go. Go tell the world. Because... You are my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. So just go do it. Believe this is going to happen. Go and tell the world. So how do we do this? How are we to be effective evangelists? I would suggest three things. First, our minds must be open to recognize that we cannot save ourselves, that we need a savior. Do you believe that you're better than the average person, or at least no worse? That you are more good than bad? Are you still living for yourself rather than for God? God's standard is perfection. 
for which we fall far short. Our only hope is in Jesus to pay the penalty of death for us to repent and accept his forgiveness for our sins. If you've never done that, speak to the person who brought you or speak to me or someone else here about what that means. Have you already repented and accepted Christ's forgiveness for his death and resurrection? Most of us, perhaps, if you're already here listening, are perhaps already Christians. Then we need to remind ourselves of the gospel daily because it's very easy to fall back into the old mindset of living for ourselves, of trying to earn our salvation. When we encounter disappointments in life, do we ever think, what did I ever do to deserve this, God? I'm trying to live for you. I deserve better. But don't you realize that what we deserve is death? What Jesus gave us is life. God's deep, deep love for us when he died on the cross didn't end on the cross. It continues today. And no matter what's happening in our lives today, God's deep love is still true and still covers us. And if we believe in that, then we believe that he is providing for us. Instead, we believe that we know better than God and that whatever's happening to us can't be good for us because we know better than what God does, right? Be reminded of the gospel, Christian. Be reminded that God's of deep, God's deep love for us. Number two, claim the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes upon us when we believe. Acts 2 and the rest of Acts talks about how that really happened. And again, Joey will be preaching on that next week. And the Holy Spirit is alive and active today, just as he was 2,000 years ago. So we can call on the Holy Spirit to give us power today, just as the Holy Spirit did 2,000 years ago. And number three, bear witness to the cross of Christ, how repentance leads to the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and remember that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Some of you may be thinking, well, this is where I get nervous. This is where I don't know what to do, what to say. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I completely mess it up? What sort of witness would I be then? Well, if you think that, then you've forgotten points one and two. So let's review them quickly. Number one, Christ is our Savior, that you can't save yourself. Well, if you can't save yourself, how do you expect to save anyone else? You can't, right? We can't save anyone else. We can't even save ourselves. So don't try. Don't think that you can. Number two, it is the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts to give us strength. So pray for the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of people you're trying to witness to and also to work in your own heart to give you strength. And what does it mean to bear witness? Does it mean to convince someone or to convert someone? No, bearing witness is just telling about what you have seen. That's all. We are not responsible to convert. We can't convert. We can just tell what we see, have seen. Bear witness. And in fact, when we witness something and we tell about it, are we saying, me, 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 me? No, we're saying, this is what I saw. The focus is not on ourselves. The focus is on Christ. So we're not worrying about what people think of us. We're worrying about Christ and telling about Christ. If we witness just thinking about ourselves, then we're probably doing it out of obligation or guilt or shame. I know I have to do this. I got to go do it. If we do it out of obligation, then we're not focusing on Christ and we're not unable to convey the love of Christ. This is just duty. This is not grace. This is works, what you're doing. 
So instead, we need to focus on Christ and how he died and saved us. And we need to speak out of love and conviction, out of a transformed heart. That's how the disciples were transformed. That's how they forgot about themselves and their own fears and were instead able to focus on Christ and what he had done for them. We witness out of love for him who died for us. Remember the disciples. They were self-centered, cowardly men, transformed by the gospel. We are no different. We can't do it. Yes, we can't. That's why we need the gospel. And that's why the disciples were transformed by the gospel. And when we realize and recognize how transformed we are, then we can live a transformed life and share the gospel, witness to the gospel. And remember, we are transformed daily. The transformation is not a one-time event. We are daily transformed. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves daily. So, in closing, what are some practical ways we can bear witness? Well, remember the good news. When we share about the good news with someone, whether it's a Christmas gift or something else, we can also remember we have the good news of the gospel to share as well. And so share the greatest good news that we have. I talked a little bit earlier about how I'm excited to evangelize about the online cycling platform Zwift. And I've been convicted about how often I've shared about Zwift with people, but how few times I've shared the gospel with people. So be convicted about sharing the good news when you have good news to share. Secondly, we can participate in some outreaches of our church, Restoration Church. We have a ministry to our children called Restoration Kids, and we can preach the gospel to our kids, and you can participate in that. We have other missions, DC-127, which works with DC's foster care system, Central Union Mission, Iglesia Biblica Sublime Gracia, the Spanish-speaking church plant that we support. These are all ministries where we can proclaim, through which we can proclaim the gospel. And we even have missionaries that we support in the Middle East that we can get involved with as well. These are all ways that we can go and bear witness for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. God, we come before you as weak, cowardly people in need of your grace and transformation. And you have transformed us and you continue to transform us daily. Remind us of your deep love for us, how you changed us, and how you died for us, and so how we can therefore live for you and be your witnesses to the ends of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.